Hey everyone, Eric here. A lot more people in Washington and other capitals are focusing more attention on what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa, the Middle East, the Americas. But this isn't an issue that you can simply jump into and expect to understand what's going on. Things are moving just way too fast. And this is a story that really doesn't fit neatly with a lot of the prevailing narratives. And that's why the newsletter that we produce is so important. It's the day-to-day tracking of this story that will help you get up to speed. We meticulously go through hundreds of sources every day to bring you a concise digest of the day's top China news from Africa and throughout the global south. And then we deliver it straight to your inbox Monday to Friday at 6 a.m. Washington time. Try it free for 30 days. See if you like it. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staten, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are heading once again back up into the Persian Gulf and the Middle East. There's just a lot going on there right now. I know we've done a lot of shows on this this year, but it really is hard to stay away when so much of Chinese diplomacy and economic activity is now in the Gulf. We've been talking a lot about over the past couple of years how Chinese energy buying has shifted from Africa into the Gulf. Uh, Some statistics this year came out that Saudi Arabia now has emerged as the number one supplier of Chinese oil. There was a very big deal that was announced a couple of weeks ago uh, with Qatar for a $10 billion, 25-year deal uh, to supply liquid natural gas. One of the issues there is how the Gulf really impacts Africa. Because when the Chinese now are shifting their oil buying from Africa to the Gulf, that means that countries like Angola, Sudan, Republic of Congo, that really depend on those oil revenues, have to find different buyers and new sources of revenue. And that really becomes very interesting because a lot of the debt sustainability issues in places like Angola are tied to oil. Also, Uh, The fact that the Chinese are now buying more liquid natural gas from places like Qatar and the United Arab Emirates is also worrisome for African hydrocarbon producers because they're not as big in the gas sector. Mozambique and Tanzania are developing their gas fields, but they're not there. This ties into some of the emissions commitments that Xi Jinping has promised to to achieve in the next 10, 15 years. So that too presents a challenge. But today we're going to be focusing on Iran. And we're going to dedicate the entire show to what's going on in Iran because of the moment that we're in right now. So the United States under the Biden administration is trying to get back into what's called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or JCPOA. At the same time, This Iran nuclear deal, as it's more commonly known, China was a player in all of this, and we're going to find out what their role is, both in terms of how the JCPOA came to fruition, but also uh, where it is today in the diplomacy going on with the United States and Europe. But more importantly for our purposes, 
there was this big deal that was announced back in March, on March 27th, called the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. It, too, is a 25-year deal. There are huge numbers floating around there. The New York Times, well, they're the only one who's saying that it's worth $400 billion. We're going to debunk that number pretty quickly. But it gives you a sense of how important this deal is. And the way it was received, both in Washington and places like Jerusalem, really was, you know, it made people very, very nervous. But at the same time, Cobus, it really reveals how Chinese diplomacy in the Gulf is really taking shape and really people are following it very closely now. Yeah, and you know the the more that China, um, you know, sets up these relationships with with countries in the Gulf, the more worried the U.S. becomes. Um, you know, and and I think I think the rest of us, you know, out, even out outside of that particular field, um, is is also watching all of this very closely. Among others, because it has such massive implications for for issues like climate change and geostrategy. Um, you know, so so I think I think it's generally something that that is actually kind of like 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 on the radar of of many. Many different fields at the same time. And by watching the diplomatic activity in the Gulf today, especially in a place like Iran, it does provide insights to what China is doing in other parts of the world as well. And that's one of the things we've been trying to do on the show is going beyond Africa in order to be able to see where we can connect dots and see some of the trends. So let's dive into this uh, comprehensive strategic partnership agreement. Some call it a big alliance. Others call it an empty gesture. It touches on everything from energy to banking to infrastructure, security, military, technology, industrial sectors, investment, trade, you name it, they're throwing it in there. One guy who's been following this very closely, and he tweets under the handle Iran China guy, so that, if nothing else, tells you he's serious. Bill Figueroa is a China-Iran scholar who recently completed his doctoral degree in the subject from the University of Pennsylvania. He's been very active lately writing about the new CSP agreement. You'll definitely want to check out his article in The Diplomat, where he debunked a lot of it, China-Iran Relations, the Myth of Massive Investment, why the 25-year China-Iran Strategic Cooperation Agreement isn't a big deal, literally or figuratively. A very good morning, Bill, and welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Happy to be here. It is great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this ever since. I, I wrote you right after the deal was was announced in late March, and I've been really excited to have you on the show. Let's kind of just start with an introduction as to what's in this massive, comprehensive strategic partnership layout the nuts and bolts of it so people have an understanding of what the two sides agreed on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's start. I think it's it's probably best to start with what it isn't because that's what has had all the fanfare around it. Um, so the agreement is not an alliance. It's not a pact. Uh, it's not even a legally binding document. So according to uh, the uh, Chinese government, it contains no quantitative specific contracts or goals. Uh, and according to the Iranian government, it is a non-binding agreement. So these are direct quotes from uh, high-level Iranian and Chinese officials. Um, what uh, It has not yet been published in full. However, a leaked draft of the document um, did come out last year. And in my opinion, that you know, it's it's not just uh, a good indication of what uh, probably is still in the agreement because you know there really hadn't been a lot of time to alter it significantly, um, but also just because insider, um, you know, a lot of reports coming from inside Iran suggested that the text of the leaked agreement and what was signed were largely the same. Uh, so what can we say is in the agreement? 
Uh, based on the leaked draft uh, and the official statements from Iranian and Chinese media, we can say the agreement consists largely of diplomatic, vague language that sets out a framework for a future partnership. Uh, so, for example, in the leaked document, you'll see language that says, like, you know, encouraging companies from both sides to develop Iranian oil fields uh, through partnership and joint investment or the development of basic services, including search engines, email providers and social messaging systems. Notice no names of specific companies or of specific plans to do anything like that. Um, there are no methods for enforcement. There are no um, specific uh, numbers even in the agreement that was signed. So the, the $400 billion figure that everyone is talking about, uh, that comes from a poorly sourced article in an oil industry affiliated magazine called uh, Petroleum Economist that was published in 2019. Uh, there's a guy in Yakupaskita did a great analysis of that at the time. Uh, and this article claimed that China would invest a total of $400 billion in Iran over the next five years, split into uh, between $280 billion for oil development and $120 billion for infrastructure projects. So they're claiming like really specific sort of numbers here. Uh, but this article relies on anonymous sources and it's been since taken offline so you really can't even see it unless you go to the Wayback machine uh, the figure however has been repeated ad nauseum since then uh, with little fact checking or attempts to trace its source uh, and I haven't seen it in anything other than that besides the New York Times article and since then it's it's kind of you know gone wild uh, even if that figure were taken from the document, which it, it, there's absolutely no evidence that, that it is, uh, it would be wildly unrealistic. So Jakob Oskita has shown that this would account for roughly two-thirds of China's planned budget for all Belt Road Initiative investments for the world during this period. Uh, so the idea that a, Iran is going to receive two-thirds of China's planned budget in this period, and, and B, that Iran is even capable of absorbing such massive amounts of investment uh, efficiently or effectively is, is, I mean, it stretches credibility to my mind. Uh, finally, there have been a lot of claims of military bases. Uh, so, for example, the original article claimed that 5,000 troops would be on Iranian territory to protect Chinese investments. Uh, this is also, I've, I've seen it nowhere, but this article and, you know, a few kind of, uh, you know, exaggerated uh, posts on Iranian social media, uh, for example. So at the end of the day, I would call this this deal uh, and first of all, not a deal, but rather an, an aspirational document. Um, it's called officially the Iran-China Strategic Comprehensive Agreement. And uh, China has strategic comprehensive agreements or strategic agreements or variations of this phrase with five other countries in the Middle East and dozens and dozens of countries around the world. Uh, and it's you know, countries large and small. And it's no indication of the degree to which that China is going to have a relationship with these countries. It's rather it is a statement of intent, uh, which uh, Jonathan Fulton, who you had on your show uh, a while back, I think a month ago, says uh, is, you know, what the two sides would like to do under ideal circumstances. There are a lot of things to be ironed out between now and then and certainly no indication that anything specific is going to happen right now. Um, certainly not $400 billion of investment. Is there anything that, that we should read in the timing of, of the agreement itself or the timing of the of, of the leak or, you know, of, of the agreement text? Um, considering, you know, kind of that it is coming in this kind of very dislocated moment in the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, um, you know, where, where we're not 100% sure, like, kind of which way the Biden administration is going to go in relation to Iran. 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard to to say exactly. Um, you know, so this is definitely speculation. But looking at the leak was definitely from the Iranian side. Uh, the document was in Persian, and just looking at the effects of the leak and who was upset about it, uh, it was the Iranian you know government was was a bit upset because the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese side actually put a pause on negotiations uh, for a while because they were quite upset about the fact that the, the, the terms of the deal had been leaked and that it was causing so much uh, friction uh, you know, diplomatically. Um, so my suspicion is that it was probably released by um, you know, people within the Iranian side who are either not a fan of the deal uh, and want, or, or at least not a fan of um, uh, you know, the current government's uh, policy uh, and was trying to sort of throw a monkey wrench into it, or possibly those who were not a fan of the current government's policy in terms of their attempts to restart the JCPOA and wanted to kind of force uh, the Iranian government to kind of lean into this leaning to China thing by, by sort of, again, stirring up the waters and, and kind of uh, scuttling the possibility of the JCPOA, uh, you know, being uh, re-implemented under renewed aggression or renewed uh, suspicion, perhaps, by the United States that doing so would only open the door for greater uh, Iran-China cooperation. Um, and that's, to sort of, I guess, to go into a little bit more of this question of timing, not just of the leak, but rather of the deal itself. Um, you know, a lot of people have been making a big deal about the, the fact that the, uh, the agreement was signed, and a week later, uh, the United States, Iran, and China, and the other signatories agreed to talks in Vienna. Um, so people have asked me multiple times, you know, does this mean that there's a direct connection between those two events? I don't think that it's the case that the United States, you know, saw this deal and then that was the, the, the sort of the, the last straw that kind of pushed them into going to negotiations. But I do think they're related in the sense that both, uh, both announcements were related to the fact that there is a new administration in Washington and the possibility of the JCPOA being um, restored is directly related to the timing of the signing of the deal because the major obstacle to the deal up to this point has been the sanctions uh, which have been put in place by the Iran nuclear deal or which, sorry, which were removed by the Iran nuclear deal and have been put back into place since the United States uh, pulled out of it. So the prospect of the United States potentially returning to the deal uh, with a new administration in town uh, is kind of what allowed the Chinese and the Iranian side to kind of finally come to this agreement because it had been scuttled for the last, uh, you know, they started talking about this in 2016. And it was when Trump pulled out of the JCPOA that they kind of put a pause on negotiations because there was really no point with the sanctions make it functionally impossible to implement most of the terms of the deal. So if the deal is a big giant nothing burger, as you've laid out in great detail on Twitter, why would Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi go to the whole effort of having a press conference, bumping elbows, signing these elegant documents, and going through the whole motion of it when it would antagonize the United States, which it did? It did antagonize Israel. It upset a lot of people. Why would the Chinese... I understand why the Iranians might want to do that, but why would the Chinese want to to poke the tiger again when this isn't a core strategic interest. One of the things that Jonathan Fulton pointed out in our discussion is that China's interests in the UAE and Qatar and Saudi Arabia are far more important right now than Iran. Iran is a secondary priority. So why go to all this effort? Why not do have an agreement that is kind of an MOU effectively, non-enforceable, just a bunch of empty promises that they do in private? 
And then when they actually have something substantive, then they do a big press conference. I just don't understand what this whole thing was about. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't want to go too far and say that this is like strictly fake news. It's a complete nothing burger. I mean, there is an expansion of Sino-Iranian connections in the works. Um, I just would say that it's more along the lines of bringing Sino-Iranian relations in line with China's relationship with other countries in the region, like you mentioned, the UAE or Saudi Arabia, uh, by raising it to an equivalent level rather than a massive uh, leaning onto or shift towards or pivot towards Iran, so to speak. Um, as for why, you know, why do it? I mean, I think you mentioned some of the good, you know, I think you said it's kind of obvious why the Iranian side is interested in the deal. It provides some measure of relief from the sanctions. Um, you know, China will buy Iranian oil. So that's going to give them some, not a great deal of, but some economic relief. Um, there's also kind of the, the sort of diplomatic value to it, right? I mean, the United States has been attempting to uh, diplomatically isolate Iran. And this is I mean, kind of their way of saying, look, this effort has failed. Uh, you can't diplomatically isolate us. How can you say that when we're concluding deals with one of the most largest and most powerful economies on earth? Um, and that's kind of where I think also the Chinese are interested. And China must like that optics as well. China must like the idea of, well, the U.S., you, you think you can isolate countries and you think you can behave in a unipolar way, exactly. but you really can't. And we're seeing that in play out in Myanmar as well, where the generals in Myanmar have said, you know what, you're trying to sanction us. We've been under your sanctions for 25 <laughs> years. Forget it. It's not going to work. And so I can imagine China does like the optics of of, of showing the ineffectiveness yes, of U.S. Yes, China's policies. position has always been that they're opposed to the sanctions and in favor of the JCPOA, uh, you know, the nuclear deal, largely because of a, uh, a, a kind of, you know, aversion to sanctions as a tool of diplomacy and a, an objection to them full stop under any circumstances. And it's obvious why. I mean, sanctions have been wielded by the United States against China or could be uh, for various issues. Um, and, you know, so I call this kind of like performative diplomacy, right, or sort of the symbolic value of diplomacy. Um, and it's something that people often undervalue. Um, you know, the reason that I actually focus on this is because if you look at China and Iran's historical relationship, I mean, now the current, you know, the last 10 or 20 years is probably the first time that there's been a real strategic and, you know, any sort of uh, significant value in improving Sino-Iranian relations from the Chinese state's perspective. Prior to this, they're, you know, they were a very, I mean, they're, all, they're still a pretty low-level strategic, strategic priority. But prior to this, they were even lower. I mean, there was really no reason for Iran and China to establish relations in the 1920s, and yet they did. And my research kind of focuses, you know, I won't get too in-depth to it unless, unless you want to know, but it focuses on how the main value of that for most of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, well into the 70s, was symbolic for various reasons, whether it was the Iranian state or in later periods, uh, Iranian um, radicals and communists were drawing on the prestige of China and Maoism uh, to put their case forward to the Iranian public. Um, so, you know, I think that this... It really is a lot about exactly what you said, kind of, you know, thumbing their, you know, they're sort of like, you know, uh, showing the United States that they're not the only dog in town, so to speak. Uh, and at the same time, you know, tempered with the reality that good relations with the United States are important. And so is China's relation with the other states in the region that don't want to see China fully pivot to Iran, so to speak. 
uh, and that China benefits from the, the you know, the quote-unquote U.S.-led security order uh, in the Middle East. So I, I kind of put it like, you know, China is is going to be ultimately self-interested in these dealings. Uh, they They do want to expand relations with Iran. They have consistently done that historically, but also they have consistently uh, kept those relations limited. Um, I don't think China is interested in any kind of revolutionary overthrow of the established order. In, uh, in an article about the deal that you wrote for The Diplomat, you mentioned that there was actually quite a lot of dismay among ordinary Iranians and actually quite a lot of fake news surrounding it, like circulating in the in the Iranian media. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it was received popularly in Iran. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's tough to talk, you know, you don't want to paint with too broad of a brush when you're talking about Iran. Um, there are a lot of people on all sides of politics who support it. You know, some people see it as this kind of America defeated narrative. Uh, you know, other people see it as potentially dangerous because they don't want to be over dependent on China uh, or over dependent on the, U- the US. And they think that Iran should pursue good relations with both countries. Um, but the, the, the outrage that you're talking about, the kind of fake news, you know, this comes with these rumors I mentioned of military bases, of selling Iranian land. So one of the more common rumors was that the island of Kish was up for sale uh, in, in, in the Persian Gulf uh, to, the, to China. And these are just complete uh, fabrications. They're wild rumors. And one of the reasons is because of... Um, you know, the, this history in Iran of, you know, the idea of selling the country, you know, back in, in historically, it was selling the country to the British or to, you know, to the Russians. Nowadays, the, the accusation that one is going to place Iran to, in a position where it's beholden to some foreign power is a very powerful historical memory and current, um, you know, accusation in Iran. Uh, on top of that, though, there are more pragmatic reasons as well. I mean, Chinese products, for example, have a very bad reputation in Iran. It's not even the case that China can't produce uh, good products. It's that because of the low level of um, significance placed on the relationship, a lot of the products that have been sent to Iran in recent years from China are not great. And Iranians, you know, some sometimes they even take offense to this. You know, there's this attitude of like, we deserve better. You know, we're, we're supposed to be concluding these relations to improve our lives, not to be sent, you know, this this junk. Um, and then there's there's also the, the kind of race to the bottom issue, right, where the flood of Chinese goods into any economy, um, whether it's in Africa or whether it's in the Middle East, can sometimes cause, you know, disruption, dislocation. It can depress wages. It can depress uh, prices. And that causes all kinds of problems. So it's sort of a mix of these genuine, you know, issues where there are economic pressures and that the fact that, you know, good relations with China are not always in the best interest of the average Iranian um, mixed in with um, these kind of, you know, sometimes even xenophobic or, um, you know, uh, they talk about, you know, Iran's going to be overrun with dirty and crime ridden Chinatowns, you know, so it's it's a mix of all these things. Um, But I think that the main reason is Iran's kind of historical experience with, um, you know, being beholden to foreign powers and what that means when you talk about it in Iran. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's shift our conversation a little bit to oil buying. And you mentioned this earlier in the discussion. The Chinese have been buying a lot of oil lately from Iran, upwards of 900,000 barrels a day. And it's being laundered, as far as we can see, through Oman, Malaysia, United Arab Emirates, and other countries. Now, there is an impact on Africa, in part because a lot of Angolan crude has gone unsold, unsold for in the June buys, in part because these Chinese, what they call as teapot refiners, these are these small refineries on the East Coast, are buying so much Iranian oil that they don't need to buy as much Nigerian 
and Angolan crude. How is that oil making it through? And this has been a question that I've been presented a number of times on Twitter, and I don't have an answer, so I'm excited to ask you. How is so much oil making it from Iran in contravention of the sanctions? How are they being able to to buy that much without getting caught or at least getting in trouble from the Americans? Um, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't know the specific methods. I just know that they they have various ways that they kind of do it off the books. Um, you know, it's just not something that I've I've looked into specifically. Um, I can tell you that um, one of the, the the main things that they talk about um, in the deal, for example, and in the reports around the deal, is that there's going to be this kind of exchange of um, oil for weaponry. That's the kind of the the, the big thing that people are are concerned about. Uh, the idea that China is going to for example, exchange um, oil directly with Iran, you know, for uh, 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 military hardware. Um, and that seems to be pretty unlikely. Uh, in recent, recently, there have been reports coming out that um, they, Iran actually made this offer, and China was not particularly interested. Um, they, they were discussing the sale of uh, some, some fighter jets, uh, and the, the Chinese response is basically that they, they don't necessarily want oil. They, they'd, more, they'd rather wait for the san- sanctions to be lifted so that they can um, you know, kind of do these these sort of deals more on the level. Uh, and I think one of the, the quotes from the Chinese general was that China is under no obligation to provide Iran with free weapons. Um, so that much I can say is is probably not going to happen. As for the specific mechanisms of how they get, they get around it or get away with it, honestly, um, you, we should talk to somebody who's more an expert in that field. Okay, yeah, I've been looking for answers on that. Nobody seems to really know, so it, it's really interesting. I think the answer might be that people just yeah, don't know, I mean, that it's kind of done under the table, off the books, and that some analysts have been able to trace uh, what must have happened, but not quite how it's happened. But by bringing weapons into the picture in Iran, I can see that that would be the kind of thing that would get the Israelis, the Americans, Mm -hmm. and the Saudis very, very anxious by bringing in advanced drones, fighter jets, and other Chinese technology. So that might be going too far. And and, and again, as you pointed out, Iran just isn't that important to uh, to, uh, upset those relationships that are far more important to the Chinese, namely Israeli technology, Saudi oil, and relations with the United States. Mm-hmm. And weapons have always been a kind of red line in this issue. Uh, in the mid-90s, uh, China pulled out of a potential deal to sell Silkworm missiles to Iran under U.S. pressure. Uh, and ironically, the further back you go, uh, in the, in the well, I believe it was the mid or late 80s, uh, there was a kind of a scandal because uh, uh, Israel actually sold some military technology to China against the wishes of the United States. And as a result, that, that technology kind of uh, found its way to Iran via the Chinese. So it's really interesting. Israel has historically played a role in this this sort of technology transfer as well. You, you mentioned Israel. Um, we've seen some a lot of concern being expressed in Israel about the deal. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, about how this deal fits in with China's relationship with the rest of the region and how it manages to, to to, you know, to 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 kind of to normalize relationships with with Iran, even as it's also try, you know, kind of like have as it always kind of also. Sorry, I'm, I'm I'll re-say, restate that my my mouth isn't working. Um, I, I wonder I wonder if you could talk a little bit. You may, you. You mentioned Israel, um, and we've recently seen uh, a lot of concern raised in Israel around the, this deal between China and Iran. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how China manages to balance all of these different competing relationships in this region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, historically, China has balanced it by not 
I don't want to say not wading into um, controversial issues, but rather taking positions that are not controversial in the region. Um, and, you know, people, people will often say, you know, uh, you know, that when you're talking about something like global opinion or the international community, right, you know, what you're really talking about is the United States and the UN and kind of the people that agree with them. Um, China typically aligns itself with actual international opinion, which is to say the opinion of the vast majority of the countries in the world. So, for example, on the the Palestinian issue, China has consistently been supportive, at least until the mid-80s or 90s, of um, the Palestinian cause, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, rhetorically, of course, they they did provide some military aid, small arms to the Palestinian resistance in the early days, but nothing uh, you know extraordinarily substantial as time went on. Um, at, at the same time, in the modern era, you know, you can kind of see a similar approach. They are you know play lip service to you know pushing back against U.S. hegemony and that you know uh, and they they you know kind of position themselves as as look we are a country that was once in a position like you uh, and now look we have moved forward and we have developed our country and we are in a in a much stronger position economically today and if you follow our path you too can be like this. And we will help you do it with loans or programs, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, that pitch has been largely successful. There are obviously the reality is is sometimes very different. Um, there are issues working with Chinese companies, issues working with Chinese banks. There are a lot of complaints, you know, whether, whether you're talking about Africa or the Middle East, uh, about, you know, racism or just the way that Chinese companies do business. But that being said, you know, uh, in terms of how they've pitched themselves to the governments, um, it's been largely successful. Um, I think that they, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't, I think because the nature of these relationships are largely, um, uh, commercial and mutually beneficial in the sense that both the Chinese government and the, uh, the local governments are often pursuing them, you know, again, whether the question of mutually beneficial often requires you to specify for whom, and the answer is often not the local people, but rather the political elites. Um, but it is beneficial, you know, and it does not provide them either side, really, with any strong um, incentive options to to complain. I mean, what is Saudi Arabia ultimately going to do if it doesn't like China moving closer to Iran? I mean, is it going to you know stop selling its oil to China? I think that it probably considers that a pretty important thing to continue to do. Um, so I don't I don't see it as having a lot of options. And I don't also don't see China as having a lot of options to constrain or impact um, Middle Eastern countries, you know, outside of the places where they've already agreed to do business. Like, for example, uh, it's common practice for Chinese banks to kind of, you know, work, collude together. And if, if you have an issue with one Chinese bank, then you're blacklisted at other Chinese banks doing business in the country. That's a common complaint. Um, but beyond things like that, um, you know, they don't have the kind of military uh, bases or, or sort of other ways that, you know, the United States, who, who kind of lead the global security order in that in the region, um, can kind of push down on the levers of power. So I think it's kind of an apples to oranges situation. Um, ultimately, I think that right now, you know, most of the countries in the region want to benefit from associating themselves with China, prestigious and uh, economically. And I think China wants to have the economic benefits and the prestige benefits of, of kind of associating themselves with other countries around the world and going out and completing the Belt and Road Project. And you know, from that perspective, it is, I guess you could say, mutually beneficial.
You mentioned in the beginning that Chinese officials have been trying to downplay it. Uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian himself came out and said, listen, there's nothing here. It's, it's just a very simple agreement. There's no commitments, as you said. And what's been interesting is to watch how Chinese scholars have also conveyed that as well, but with a little bit more depth. There's two scholars in particular that I want to bring people's attention to. Uh, Fan Hongda is a professor at the Shanghai International Studies University. He tweets at Fan, F-A-N underscore H-O-N-G-D-A. I highly recommend that everybody take a look at him. There's also a quote that you featured in some of your writing by Li Quanzi, who is a professor at Reming University, and he wrote an op-ed in the Beijing Daily Newspaper on the agreement, and he said, the long-standing friendship between China and Iran is a microsm of China's Middle East diplomacy. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I mean, China has this narrative, you know, like I said, they've been kind of very successful in pushing it, um, that uh, there is a long-standing positive relations between China and these, you know, these countries, whether they're talking about in the, in the modern era, um, because there, there, you know, there has been a, a, at this point, there's been a sort of long, you know, a, a kind of 20, 30 year history of China's, you know, reaching out to the Middle East. Um, but especially when they started, they're often referring to this kind of like Silk Road history, right? That China traditionally has these, these positive relations with these other countries and that it was only with the advent of Western colonialism and modern uh, Western uh, imperial history that these connections were severed. And so in some ways, China's coming back to the Middle East uh, is seen as a sort of restoring uh, historical injustice and putting these relations back to their natural state, which is to have them be friendly and mutually beneficial, etc. Um, and like, as I said, they, they, they portray them in this way for, the moder- for modern policy as well, even though, um, you know, when you examine the policies more closely, it's a bit more of a mixed bag. Um, you know, my research is also kind of on how the reality of this history, as one might expect, is not quite that simple. Uh, and that, you know, the history of China's relationship with the Middle East is quite up and down, and that there are both, you know, positive interactions and negative interactions, and that largely it's um, not as significant or close as uh, probably this Chinese state would like to portray it as. So we recently spoke with Andrea Giselli of, of the China Med Project, um, and we also touched on, on, on the deal with him. Um, and in one of his papers, he he pointed out that that um, in the negotiation of the deal, China actually functioned as a kind of a back-channel you know, partner to the Obama administration, helping to facilitate some 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 of the the kind of processes. I wonder if, if you know, like from your view, kind of how you see the Biden administration moving forward in maybe trying to resuscitate the deal, or like where the deal is standing with you know in in relation to the U.S. at the moment, and then how you see you know that that China's China's role kind of playing out in in this larger context. It's very hard to say at this point. Um, I think that you know I've always I'm always skeptical of um, attempts to reset negotiate or re- normalize relations between the United States and Iran um, because you know I believe that there are many reasons why the United States um, prefers in a lot of ways to have antagonized antagonistic relations or at least certain segments of the United States foreign policy decision makers. Um, so you know it really depends on who is kind of you know, ruling the roost right now. And, and it's, I really don't know. Um, I think that there's, we're probably closer 
than we have been in the past to a breakthrough on that. But it's going to come down to is the United States willing to make uh, some concessions here because the, you know the Iranian side is not likely to abandon its uh, its you know all of its preconditions. Uh, and if if America comes in with you know a very hard line stance, it's likely to go nowhere. Um, you know we saw that in you know Trump's diplomacy with North Korea, where you know it really ultimately did not go anywhere despite all the great fanfare. Um, you know, so I, I'm kind of holding off on on making any statements about that. I, I'm 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 cautiously hopeful that that's the direction they're going in. Uh, as far as China's um, role in that process, you know, I think it's potentially positive. Um, you know, like you said, they did function as a back channel in the uh, Obama days. There was also slightly better relations between China and America in the Obama days. And, you know, you have to look at Biden's kind of opening moves uh, towards China have not been particularly um, uh, friendly. But at the same time, you know, there is absolutely the potential for uh, China to pressure either Iran or the United States, you know who they have relations with, um, to return to the deal. It's certainly in their interest. Like I said, the deal, uh, the the uh, Iran-China uh, agreement certainly can't be implemented in any meaningful way as long as the sanctions remain. Um, and it's been their consistent position. Now, whether they have any, uh, they they probably do have some leverage to pressure Iran. You know, perhaps to um, uh, accept you know less. Uh, uh, harsh stance towards, you know, negotiations. But, you know, these, again, this is kind of in the realm of speculation. I really don't know uh, whether that's going to be possible. I want to pick up, stay with the United States right now. Again, you've talked about the Biden administration, but he doesn't Mm -hmm. have a lot of room to move because on the right flank is an enormous amount of pressure to be very hostile to Iran. In fact, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn really represents and channeled that voice just a couple weeks ago on Fox News when she said, what we know is China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea are the new axis of evil. And it seems to be that this agreement plays right into some of the very powerful narratives in Washington about the Russian's the Chinese, and the Iranians. And I'm wondering, when you have a chance to speak with American stakeholders about this issue, what are you telling them and what are you hearing? Um, well, I wish I had more chances to speak with uh, people who could make decisions on these things. I can't tell you well, what it's not thinking. even people who make decisions because Tucker Carlson has a say in all of this. Right, right. Remember, we're such a divided country that whatever Biden does, he doesn't have free reign because he's got a very narrow margin in the Senate. He's barely holding on to the House. And that those majorities may not last past next year. Yes. So he doesn't have a lot of maneuverability, I guess, is my point. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's part of the reason why I'm, you know, I'm slightly hesitant to say, oh, yeah, even, you know, even if you can make the case that it's clearly in the interest of his administration and it's his preferred policy, I'm not yet convinced that um, he's not going to be influenced by those forces, um, you know, because especially, like I said, considering his his opening stance towards Russia and China has not really set my mind at ease as far as that goes. Sorry, what was the other part of your question? You spend a lot of time on Twitter myth-busting and kind of trying to put put out fires right. about misunderstandings on these issues. And, and to be fair, which is very interesting, you've been accused by some who that you are working for Beijing and you're some kind of communist apparatchik. <laughs> and on the other hand, you have been also been accused of being an imperialist anti-China clickbaiter. So I have an enormous amount of respect for you because Kobus and I fall into that same category of offending all <laughs> at the same time. So, so really, again, that's the only way you know you're doing it right, man. <laughs> there we go. So uh, props to you on that one. But 
this just feeds into a lot of partisan messaging in Washington. So it's this idea of how are you challenging some of those narratives in Washington the same way you are on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I got into studying this because I grew up in a world where I was kind of told by the news and by everyone around me that, you know, there are basically two major enemies to America, Iran and China. And I very quickly picked up on the fact that a lot of the news around them uh, just didn't quite feel right. And when I looked into it, I often found that there was more to the story than what was being told. Um, so I was, you know, I guess I would, you could say I've been myth busting my entire career, right? You know, I got into this to sort of say, look, I want to be someone who has actually taken the time to study these people that you're talking about in this way and these countries that you're talking about in this way and to, you know, maybe offer something a little bit more realistic. Um, and so that's what I try to do. I mean, I don't take any explicit stance on is this deal good for Iran? Is it good for China? Should they do it? Should they not do it? Um, clearly, I am in favor of the resumption of the JCPOA and the removal of the sanctions, largely because of the removal of the sanctions, um, because to me that is you know, one of the more egregiously, morally outrageous policies of our time, the way that we make the Iranian people suffer and, and have a lack of medicine and, and, and basic consumer products, you know, is, is to me, it's, it's unconscionable. You know, so that's really where I come, where I'm starting on this issue. Um, and from there, you know, I kind of, I just like to be realistic. If you're, if, you know, you, you said you, there's all these, these hostile forces towards Iran and on, you know, these same forces are working from the, on the China side as well, you know, these, the, the, the notion that, you know, these, these uh, deals are being exaggerated, you know, kind of just, just for clickbait or whatever, you know, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think that there are, um, you know, there's, there's political reasons that these arguments are made in public and in, in the pages of newspapers and what have you. Um, and they are in order to exactly what you said, to, to, increase pressure on the Biden administration to take an aggressive tack towards either China or Iran or both at the same time. Um, and so I like to point out uh, the realities of these things, that these are exaggerations. And I say it quite explicitly in my writing that I'm pushing back against the, these alarmist notions that we have to take a more aggressive tact towards China and towards Iran, or else we're going to sort of allow them to overthrow our order and, you know, to overthrow the global order and to kind of, um, you know, uh, fundamentally threaten United States global strategy. And I just, I think it's, it's just not true. Um, and, you know, I, I'm always happy to get into the politics of, you know, why I, what I might think or what I might believe. But on the very basic level, you know, regardless of what I believe, I'm just trying to point out that the things that you are saying about this are objectively not true. And if you're going to push for something like an aggressive policy that's going to harm people, I think you need to start with something that's true. You know, as we, we've seen over the last two years or so, that that there's been a lot more attention paid to the situation in Xinjiang, um, and and you know, kind of, and with it, you know, kind of larger kind of China Muslim community issues. Do you foresee that there's going to that this is going to take? fire in parts of the of, of the Middle East. Um, you know, so far, we you, particularly we've been focusing on Africa, and we've seen that Muslim majority countries in Africa have not touched the issue at all. Like, in, in fact, in many of them have actually expressed support for China's policies in Xinjiang rather than the other way around. So are you seeing similar patterns in the Middle East? And do you do you foresee that it might kind of take fire as a, as a more popular issue at some stage? 
I, um, you know, I, I don't follow it in the rest of the Middle East, but I do follow it in Iran, and I do see similar patterns in Iran. Um, there is official support for the policy um, on various levels. It's not something that's widely talked about, but on the, the few occasions when it is talked about, yes, there have been uh, expressions of support, and it's not difficult to see why. I mean, both you know, Iran and other countries in the Middle East, you know, have, uh, you know, there are certain types of Muslims that in certain types of people that they oppress or repress. And, you know, I think they kind of slotted into that same category. In Iran, you see it kind of pitch, you know, kind of pitched similarly to, you know, repressing, you know, her uh, heretic religions. And, you know, they, these, these are kind of like people who are the wrong Muslims, or they're, they're kind of, you know, Salafi extremists, or what have you. Um, and uh, in, in general, I don't think the Iranian public knows about it that much. It's really is still something that's largely known in the West in academic circles. It's just not something that's talked about by Iranian people. There is one, I can't remember his name, but there's at least one Iranian um, former congressman who I've seen speak about it in public, um, but I didn't seem, to, didn't seem to be much that came of that. Um, so I suspect that for you know, very obvious reasons that it's not in their interest to rock the boat on this issue and that, you know, certainly similar accusations could be leveled against them for their policies in other areas. Uh, I don't think it's likely to, to catch fire, no. Since this is a rare occasion when we actually have another American on the show, I'm going to close our discussion with a baseball metaphor about <laughs> throwing you a curveball. So I don't know right. if you're going to be able to answer this question, but I'm curious to see if we could even try so Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou is in custody in Canada, facing extradition to the United States on charges that Huawei was doing business with Iran. My question is, do mm -hmm. you think or do you have any insight or any thought, because I know you probably don't know any of the details inside it, but is she a player in this, a piece of currency with the United States as it relates to China and Iran? I don't know if it's specifically as it relates to China and Iran. I think it's more of a, of a, a sort of a piece of currency in the, the broader U.S.-China uh, rivalry game, so to speak. Uh, and the, the intersection with Iran is kind of one of those points, um, you know, where where they could kind of find a place to apply pressure. You know, I mean, there's also, there were also issues with Huawei um, in the U.K., right? So it's not only in Iran where they, they run into issues. Um, but no, I don't know any of the specific details of it, so I can't really speak to it more than that. Sorry, it's, I'm, I'm going to have to bunt, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I would throw it at you. It was a curveball, you know, but I just thought I would try only because <laughs> she is a, a bit player in all of this, but part of the U.S.-China-Iran dynamic. And again, not directly related to, the, to anything that we've talked about today, but since I had you here, I just thought it would be good to, to see if you had any insight on that. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I do think, I mean, it points to the degree to which, right, that this is why the sanctions are not uh, you know, make it almost impossible to implement these deals, right? Because of the ever-threatening specter that the United States might decide, you know, to to behave in various ways, whether implementing the terms of the sanctions, or I'm sure in China's, you know, in, in China's perspective, um, you know, kind of selectively implementing terms of the sanctions, right? You know, ch picking and choosing which places and, and who they're going to apply extra pressure to. I'm sure it's no, not um, uh, uh, coincidental that it's Huawei, right? I mean, there's much larger significance to that. Um, so this is, you know, this is exactly why they can't repatriate their funds. People that do business with Iran are liable to be, um, you know, uh, 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 caught by the U.S. legal 
system. Um, so it, they really, I, you know, I've often said that the uh, resumption of the JCPOA and the removal of the sanctions is the major precondition to the implementation of the of the Iran-China deal and any significant improvement in China-Iran relations going forward. The article is China-Iran Relations, the Myth of Massive Investment, Why the 25-Year China-Iran Strategic Cooperation Agreement Isn't a Big Deal, Literally or Figuratively. It was written by Bill Figueroa, who is a China-Iran scholar and by far has the best Twitter handle. If people want to find you and follow all of your myth-busting on Twitter, where can they find you? You can find me at Iran China Guy. <laughs> well, that is it, Iran China Guy. I love that. So uh, again, we'll put the links to that and the article in the show notes of this program. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to checking back in with you later in the year just to see how everything is going. And we really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Hopefully at that point, I'll be able to plug my book for you. That would be great. We're looking forward to it. Kobus, it's interesting to listen to Bill. We just talked to Andrea. And then earlier before that, we had a conversation with Jonathan Fulton from Zayed University. So we've been focusing a lot on the Persian Gulf and the Middle East. And in part because it just feels like to me that the scale and the importance of China's diplomacy in this region and this is going to sound awful, but it just feels so much bigger and more important than what the Chinese are doing in Africa. African diplomacy for the Chinese feels very small right now. There is no big initiatives. FOCAC is coming, but we don't know anything about what what FOCAC is going to be. The, the Chinese have kept very low profile. And, and to be honest with you, there's a lot less news about China-Africa in the past few months. It's dialed down quite a bit. You strip vaccines out of the equation, and it's a lot less. I don't know if it's because the Chinese have lost interest in in Africa, diplomatically and politically. It might also just be that events in other parts of the world, the United States, South America, the Persian Gulf, Eastern Europe, are just really big. And, And because it's big, it's taking up a lot more attention from the Chinese, and that might be taking away from their focus on Africa. I think, you know, we one sees these these kind of momentary, you know, silences in China-Africa relations. They're, they're, I think they're kind of cyclical, and I think they it is part of it ramping up to FOCAC. So I think there's probably a lot happening behind the scenes, um, particularly because because FOCAC is going to be, I think there's going to be a challenging FOCAC for China. So I, so I think the, the, the amount of kind of back-channel, you know, diplomacy is probably kind of ramping up in, in proportion to that. But, the, but I agree with you. I I think it's it's also that it's you know it's it, COVID obviously sucks about a lot of oxygen out of this conversation, but at the same time I think it's also that that the Middle East is just really big and important, you know, kind of and, and particularly the fact that China has, has we've seen you know several kind of new Chinese initiatives within the Middle East, um, you know, and 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 each of those then kind of like triggers a whole bunch of tripwires all really all directly connected to Washington, you know, so so any kind of development that China does in the Middle East is raises raises attention everywhere else um, you know and, and in the process I think it then kind of overshadows Africa to a large extent yeah and there's been a lot of these big deals so again the comprehensive strategic partnership was a big deal the Qatari gas deal is a big deal there's talk right now that Chinese state-owned oil interests will take a one percent share of Saudi Arabia's national oil company Saudi Aramco and we featured a columnist today in our daily newsletter who said that this really symbolizes the end of the American influence now it's hard to think that a 1% deal in in Aramco would do that but 
it really does show how Saudi Arabia in many ways is turning away from the United States as a special partner and towards Beijing. However, it was very interesting what, what Bill said, that the Saudis don't have anywhere near the leverage that they have with the Chinese that they did with the United States. And so if the Chinese want to engage more with Iran, well, the Saudis, what are they going to do? Where are they going to sell that quantity of oil to? They don't need to. They can't sell it to the Americans. The, if the Chinese don't buy it, there really isn't another buyer. Also because the Europeans are going green and they're trying to move into a post-carbon economy. So their oil buying is going to go down. That's going to give the Chinese a lot of leverage in this region. It's all so much of this stuff, you know, is, is obviously is, is related to climate change, um, and it's and it's very interesting to see it discussed, you know, kind of where everyone is is, how can I say, like you know, it's, it's not even that people are avoiding related discussing it in, in relation to climate change, it's as if that that framing of it to just the the framing of of climate change within the kind of you know Middle Eastern geopolitics conversation is is so lacking frequently, you know, kind of, and, and it's it's so not factored in. And and with with it comes this this the situation that a lot of the kind of dynamics we're seeing and a lot of the, the the conclusions we're drawing from those dynamics are all on this very short time horizon. You know, we all to, like all of these dynamics are, are, are we're talking about five, ten, fifteen years. You know, um, after which a lot of these a lot of climate commitments will have kicked in. You know, kind of China is supposed to be reaching you know kind of by by twenty thirty reaching kind of oil, uh, you know, peak oil by twenty thirty. Um, so you know, so so there seems to be a lot of kind of of these kind of short term calculations where people are trying to kind of sell as much of this stuff as possible or buy as much as kind of oil and gas as possible while they while it still makes sense you know kind of in their economies. Um, so it it seems like it's going to be a field that's going to change very fundamentally over the next decade. So that is inextricably linked with Africa in so many different ways. So we've talked about how Chinese oil buying from Africa has gone down steadily over the years as it shifted to the Persian Gulf. Also, as the Chinese move into natural gas away from oil and petroleum, that too will impact Africa. Another way that the Persian Gulf relationship with China impacts Africa's through weapons. Gosh, it was about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Somebody's probably going to fact check me on this, but it was a Wing Lung drone that was sold to the United Arab Emirates that was used in Libya, according to a BBC investigation in the civil war in Libya. And this is very interesting how Chinese weapons are being sold into the Persian Gulf, but now making their way into, into conflict zones in Africa, particularly in North Africa as well. So you have to look at what's going on in the Persian Gulf in, and the Middle East in the context of the broader uh, Africa relationship as well. That, that military base in Djibouti is not intended purely to be used only for Africa. That is strategically located so it has access into the Red Sea, into the, the Persian Gulf, and into the Gulf of Aden as well, as well as the Indian Ocean. So all of these are inextricably linked, and that's one of the reasons why we're taking a greater interest in this. Let's close our discussion, Kobus, in terms of where do you see this going in terms of the balance of China's interest and engagement in Africa, North Africa, and the Persian Gulf? I think that, you know, one of the interesting effects of, of Chinese engagement is, is that it tends to kind of draw regions together that that have traditionally been siloed in people's minds. You know, so, so obviously Africa and the Middle East tend to stand separately in people's minds. And I think increasingly... You know, one of the one of the kind of effects of Chinese engagement in both is that they're kind of weaving them closer together. Um, we're seeing a lot of Chinese companies, for example, 
in, in places like Dubai, centering themselves there and then doing a lot of business in East Africa, for example. So, you know, so in that sense, I think it's 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 going to be part of a necessary kind of, you know, reorganization in how we talk about these regions, not least because we're seeing a lot of similar problems popping up in Africa than, than we saw in the Middle East. So, for example, I think it like there was this, this week, I think there was an announcement that that a, a massive gas um, exploration project in Mozambique is being shelved indefinitely, I think by Total. Um, and because of, of um, ISIS affiliated um, insurgencies in, in Mozambique. So, I mean, Mozambique Mozambique is very south, you know. Mozambique obviously is is, is a neighboring country with South Africa. Um, so we're talking about what what was this, this kind of overlap between between kind of you know kind of Islamic militarism, militarism and hydrocarbons. What used to be a traditional kind of thing to talk to discuss in in, in the context of of the Middle East is now in Southern Africa, um, and you know so and we we all you know places where where China has had has established itself you know over a long time so a lot of these discussions i think are going to have to be reframed um and and kind of like re recontextualized in an african context you know you know um and and it's going to be very interesting to see whether the fact that they're now showing up in africa is going to make them more or less you know um noteworthy for people for the international community you know so so you know, in in the past, obviously, the the overlap of Islamism and hydrocarbons, you know, like the international community, particularly the US, saw that as really, really big news. Now that it's like showing up in Mozambique, not such big news. So it's you know, so it's 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 very interesting to see that, and it's going to be very very interesting to see how China reacts to these developments. Okay, well, let's leave our conversation there. We're going to get back into the more conventional China-Africa discussions next week and the week after. But we thought it would be great for this week to, to divert our attention into the Persian Gulf and Middle East, in part going back to what Koba said, that they are linked. And you can't look at Africa in isolation of what's happening in these other parts of the world, simply because the Chinese are using different tactics and methods in different regions, but there are lessons that we can apply to what they're doing in the Persian Gulf, to what's happening in Africa. So we'll leave our discussion there. But if this is the kind of thing that you are interested in and what you're following for work or just you're personally interested in it, we write about it every single day. Every issue that Bill talked about was documented in our daily newsletter. Our newsletter is basically a a rundown of everything that's happening in China and the Global South with a focus on what's going on in Africa. This is intended to save you time. So we go through, we contextualize everything, we filter out everything, we find good sources, we find voices from all different sides of the discourse in order to bring you a comprehensive look at the key issues like what Bill was talking about. Our goal is to make it easier for you to understand these issues. We're not here to persuade you of any issue or or, or idea. Our goal is just to make sure that you've got good information. If you'd like to sign up, head over to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We have a free 30-day trial. If you like it, use the promo code podcast at checkout and we'll give you 20% off your subscription rate. So that'll do it for Kobus van Staden. I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>